0: Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Walter Olson. I'm with the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. And we are here today to uh, welcome Peter Schuck, author of a fascinating new book, which I recommend to all of you, uh, Why Government Fails So Often and How It Can Do Better. That's a partially controversial libertarian title. Professor Schuck is a professor emeritus of law at Yale Law School and has taught at other institutions as well. Uh, His extremely varied career includes being a Nader's Raider and the director of the Washington Office of Consumers Union, uh, being Deputy Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation at the U.S. Department of HEW. As I understand it, that is the job where you have to tell them what programs are not working, Uh, the consolation being that at least they won't get mad at you since they won't listen. Um, He has advanced degrees uh, in international law and government, as well as a J.D. from Harvard Law School. Uh, He is also the author of a series of other books, Uh, Including uh, with the late James Q. Wilson, co edited Understanding America, uh, books on topics like immigration and administrative law, uh, uh, both of which he is experts on, uh, tort law, which is how I originally got to know him, and uh, my favorite, uh, Meditations of a Militant Moderate Cool Views on Hot Topics. Uh, Afterward, we will be hearing comments from Arnold Kling. uh, Known to many of you at the Cato Institute, Arnold is an adjunct scholar with Cato. Uh, He uh, got his PhD in economics from MIT in 1980. He was an economist on the staff of the Federal Reserve System and also a senior economist at Freddie Mac, uh, but only through 1994, getting out when the getting was good. Um, He is associated with the Mercatus Center in Arlington, Virginia. And his fascinating website at arnoldkling.com is one that I recommend to all of you. Please join me in welcoming Peter Schott. Thank you, Wally. And
1: I'm delighted to be here at the Cato Institute uh, to present a book that I fear um, may seem, from its title, like I'm bringing coals to Newcastle. Uh, why government fails so often. Uh, this is, after all, the Cato Institute, and uh, so uh, this message will be, I think, affirming to you. But what I hope to suggest is that um, you may not fully appreciate the reasons why government fails, or the magnitude of the failure, um, and and how it might be rem- those failures might be uh, might be remedied. Um, that is to say. Um, the, most of the discussion about government failure is a highly theoretical, rhetorical, uh, deeply politically philosophical level uh, rather than uh, at an analytical level based on uh, uh, empirical evidence. And so that's, if I have a contribution to make to the people at Cato, uh, that uh, that may be to uh, enrich that particular uh, kind of, uh, of evidence for conclusions that you probably uh, have no need for uh, fortification about. Um, I'm also delighted to uh, uh, be on a panel with uh, Wally Olson, with whom I've worked for, my God, it's almost 30 years. Um, uh, He edited a book to which I contributed way back in the 1980s. uh, And also to be on a panel with Arnold Kling, whose work I've uh, respected for, for so long. So I begin with the notion of a crisis, and of course, every book uh, is trying to sell the idea that there is a crisis, Uh, and this is particularly a a crisis um, that, again, uh, Cato um, followers uh, are aware of and and indeed have uh, emphasized in your own own lives. Um, I have a lot of data on the decline in public confidence in the federal government. I will only mention... Uh, a few, uh, a few points um, of, of special interest. Uh, even among Democrats, there has been a rapid and, and, and precipitous decline in uh, confidence. Forty-one uh, percent uh, had uh, favorable views of the fa- federal government in, ni- in 2013. That's 41 percent of Democrats. That's down 10 percent in one year, and this was before Obamacare uh, was, was uh, launched. Um, according to the Brookings Institution, 56% of Democrats um, uh, believe that the federal government is mostly or completely broken. Democrats. Um, and uh, uh, I mentioned that these statistics were gathered before uh, the Obamacare uh, fiasco um, uh, in its rollout. Uh, Tom Edsel, in, a, in an op-ed in The Times yesterday, uh suggests that uh, the consequences of that rollout are far greater than, uh, than uh, is uh, anticipated by, uh, by most political observers. He thinks it's going to ramify uh, throughout the next uh, several uh, elections. Uh, what is the biggest threat uh, to America's future, according to the public? 64% say it's big government. Uh, while only 26% said big business, and this this uh, polling was conducted only a few years after the recession, uh, so that's a, a, it seems to me a very telling uh, a point of uh, departure. In 2011, uh, um, uh, 79% of those polled were frustrated or angry with the federal government. 74% said the same thing in 2007 before the recession. Now, what are the reasons for this decline in uh, public confidence in the government? I propose uh, several explanations, but the one that I'm going to concentrate on and the one that constitutes the bulk of my analysis is sort of a straightforward one. The government performs very, very poorly. When I say the government, by the way, I'm referring to the federal government, not other governments. And I'm referring to domestic policy, not national security, military, or foreign affairs policy. My book is limited in those respects. Um, uh, So that's my subject, why government fails. Uh, uh, And um, uh, there are a variety of theories as to why uh, the the government performs so poorly. an emphasis uh, that will not surprise those of you who live in Washington is the, is the uh, explanation of partisan bickering and congressional paralysis. Um, the Democrats blame the Republicans. The Republicans blame the Democrats uh, for any failures that they're prepared to concede. Uh, I emphatically disagree with this. Uh, if you examine our history of political discourse, it has been tendentious, uncivil, uncivil, angry and uh, furiously uh, partisan from the very, very beginning. Uh, Some of the greatest achievements of the past, uh, the uh, Intercontinental Railroad and uh, Hoover Dam and Interstate Highway uh, System were accomplished only fitfully and after a protracted disagreement uh, by policy makers. Polarization, I argue, is not the cause of our problems. It's the consequence of our problems. And there's a remarkable correlation that I think uh, confirms this uh, this, uh, point of view. Uh, First is that the growth in government spending and policy ambitions has paralleled almost perfectly, if if you chart them, the growth in public disaffection and contempt for government uh per capita gov- uh, per capita spending by the federal government um, today is greater than in France, Germany uh, and the UK. Uh, this this growth occurs in good times and bad. It's unlinked. It's been set adrift from the Keynesian uh, cyclical uh, uses of, of government. Um, and it doesn't depend on whether Republicans or Democrats. Uh, control what goes on in Washington. Um, the debt to GDP ratio of the federal government exceeds mo- that in most EU countries, and it also exceeds uh, the Latin American average. Just to provide some uh, some context. Um, this growth of federal government is obscured by a, a number of factors, uh, except to those who study these matters very carefully. One is the immense growth in private contracting uh, by the government, um, the immense participation in the implementation of government programs by nonprofits and uh, state and local uh, governments. Um, and the, the, the myth that the United States has a small public sector, And as a welfare state laggard, although perhaps true in some comparative terms, is, uh, as a myth, (laughs) utterly false. Um, And uh, uh, one way of understanding what's happened uh, is summarized by, and I summarize in the book, by um, James Q. Wilson, the late James Q. Wilson and, and John Diulio who distinguished between the old system and the new system. The old system, they write, had a small agenda. When someone proposed adding a new issue to the public agenda, a major debate often arose over whether it was legitimate for the federal government to take action at all in the matter. For the government to take bold action under this system, the nation usually had to be facing a crisis. Each succeeding crisis left the government bureaucracy somewhat larger than it had been before, but when the crisis ended, the exercise of extraordinary powers ended. The new system is characterized by a large policy agenda, the end of the debate over the legitimacy of government action, except in the area of First Amendment freedoms, the diffusion and decentralization of power in Congress, and the multiplication of interest groups. Under the old system, the checks and balances made it difficult for the government to start a new program, and so the government remained relatively small. Under the new system, these checks and balances make it hard to change what the government is already doing, and so the government... Remains large. So my central theme, the core of my core idea of my book, is that federal domestic policy failures are caused by deep, recurrent, structural, systemic, endemic conditions. It doesn't matter which party is in power. It doesn't matter what the state of the economy is. I think that as a result of this uh, and and, and, and as a result of uh, my analysis of the reasons for this, liberals, conservatives, and, I dare say, libertarians, have an, an enormous stake in understanding these reasons. Well, how do I analyze uh, the reasons? Uh, first, let me say just a, a bit about my methodology. I rely on social science assessments by economists, political scientists, think tanks, GAO, CBO, Inspector Generals of, uh, of uh, federal uh, departments. My criterion for success or failure is cost-effectiveness. And I in, devote an entire chapter to explaining what I mean by cost-effectiveness, what methodologies exist, particularly cost-benefit analysis, to, uh, to measure uh, uh, effectiveness. Um, I believe it is a very balanced and subtle um, assessment of cost-benefit analysis, which is itself an assessment methodology, uh, and the principles for its use uh, in light of its shortcomings. Um, But that's what I'm talking about when I uh, discuss success. We could measure success in other ways. I I don't think any of them would be very satisfactory. Certainly political success is uh, is hardly uh, a a justified um, use of that uh, term. Uh, nor does the continuation of programs over long periods of time in multiple administrations a a valid measure of success or failure. So what are these structural reasons for failure um, that I have been uh, presaging in these introductory remarks? Well, the first is political culture. The political culture uh, in the United States imposes enormous constraints on the effectiveness of government policy, whatever that government policy uh, will be, although certain government policies are hobbled more uh, by these political constraints uh, than others. Um, And let me emphasize at the outset that many aspects of the political culture are highly desirable and ought not to be changed, Uh, but even if they should be changed, they can't be changed very easily. Indeed, I think it's virtually impossible to change these features of our uh, political culture, precisely because they are <laughs> cultural. They are deeply embedded in our in our uh, uh, in the way in which we view uh, the uh, the world around us. So, what are these um, what are these um, elements that I emphasize? The first is constitutionalism. Um, that's the most familiar uh, to you, and uh, one that the uh, Cato Institute uh, uh, emphasizes in its, its own work. I needn't rehearse that. A uh, second is decentralization, uh, which makes it very difficult for federal policy to, uh, to be implemented, or indeed for the federal government to know how its policies will impact those who uh, are its intended uh, beneficiaries. A third is the protection of individual rights. Uh, a sacred mission in, in, in our culture, and one that makes it very difficult for government to do whatever it wants to do effectively uh, because of the uh, strong protections given to uh, to individual uh, freedoms. Uh, a fourth constraint is interest group pluralism, which is perhaps more more robust in the United States than anywhere else. It's one of the glories of our system, but it's also a feature, of our system that uh, renders government either impotent or uh, or uh, or or feckless and uh, and and blundering. Um, uh, another is the acceptance of social and economic inequality by uh, by the vast majority of the population. Now this may strike you as is somewhat odd, but uh, when one compares the United States with uh, well, all other liberal democracies, we tend to care less about equality than we do, except for quality of opportunity. Important, important uh, uh, qualification. Uh, we less we care less about equality of results uh, than uh, any other societies. We worry less about it uh, uh, for uh, deeply, I think, deeply embedded uh, reasons. Um, so that uh, policies that are designed to promote equality of outcomes uh, meet a kind of resistance uh, that they would not meet in other countries, particularly where those efforts by government uh, create enormous uh, uh, inefficiencies uh, along the way, as they almost invariably do. Uh, Another feature of the the political uh, environment is uh, our moralism. Uh, Moralism derived from both our religious uh, convictions and the, religi- the uh, uh, strongly religious uh, uh, basis of our uh, social uh, values, uh, and uh, the nature of our politics, which lends itself to uh, political moralizing, uh, partly because it's mimicking uh, the religious convictions of the American people, and partly for uh, for uh, other reasons. Another important political constraint is social diversity, and what, what that implies is that uh, a, a uniform federal law uh, cannot uh, be nimble enough and flexible enough and and uh, uh, variegated enough to reflect the underlying needs and desires uh, of the population. Again, we are unique in our social diversity in any modern liberal uh, democracy for, for a variety of reasons, not simply for reasons of immigration, but also because of our religious uh, diversity and our Uh, economic uh, um, system. Um, Another important uh, constraint on the effectiveness of of policymaking is uh, populist suspicion of technical expertise and and official uh, discretion. Um, Public opinion, very powerful in the United States, more powerful, uh, I dare say, than in other liberal democracies which is one of the reasons, uh, I I think, why, uh, for example, uh, one of many examples, uh, capital punishment uh, is uh, uh, sustained in uh, most American states uh, even today, uh, whereas the elites tend to disfavor uh, uh, capital punishment. In Europe, the elites get their way, and the United States, uh, the people, broadly speaking, uh, get their way on issues of that kind. And then finally, civil society, uh, with its part of its part of uh, the diversity of which I spoke earlier, uh, but uh, our civil society is so robust, and so varied, and so uh, energetic uh, that a government that seeks to domesticate it or to uh, regulate it, um, or even in some cases to work with it, is uh, going to run into problems of um, of ineffectiveness. So that's the first important feature that's structural, that's endemic, and that hobbles federal federal policymaking. A second one has to do with incentives. And in this chapter, um, I discuss uh, public choice theory and its shortcomings uh, as a way of introducing the problem of incentives. Um, and I uh, develop a number of different uh, propositions based on my reading of, of this literature. Uh, uh, So I'll I'll just uh, read them, um, the the, the headlines in this uh, this distillation of uh, principles. Ordinary citizens have little or no rational incentive to participate actively in political activity. Political actors design policymaking institutions and processes to advance their self-interest. The political effectiveness of a group depends, among other things, on its ability to manage incentives so as to overcome structural obstacles to collective action. Officials have powerful incentives to provide voters and interest groups with short-term benefits and to hide the long-term costs that must pay for those benefits. The political dynamics of public policy depend on how it distributes its benefits and costs among voters and groups. Much political activity consists of narrow interest log rolling at the expense of uh, taxpayers, uh, something that uh, uh, Arnold Kling has written a great deal about, Moral hazard is a major source of incentive-based uh, programmatic failure and, uh, and propositions of, uh, of that kind. And the examples that I uh, provide and explicate uh, include many, many different kinds of programs, the Social Security Disability Insurance, uh, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, Fannie and Freddie, uh, and, uh, and, and a host of others. Um, uh, the next systemic defect, if you will, Uh, although these are not all defects. I should, as I said before, we, uh, our our system, uh, our society is rich and successful as a society, as distinguished from polity, uh, by reason of uh, many of these uh, factors. But um, uh, uh, but the next one is uh, what I call collective irrationality. And here I emphasize voters' ignorance of, about public uh, issues. Uh, a literature that many of you have encountered in one way or another, uh, perhaps through Daniel Kahneman's recent book, but uh, the, the basic research was conducted by Kahneman and Tversky and, and has now become uh, a very, very uh, a much um, uh, discussed, uh, not only in the Academy, but, uh, but even in the halls of Congress. And Cass Sunstein... Uh, whose work, many of you uh, know, uh, also relies heavily on this, on this uh, literature. A third literature is one that's been developed by my colleague at Yale, uh, Dan Kahan, which he calls cultural cognition. What he means by that is that in a, on a large number of public issues, when he tests for people's views um, on, on these issues, he finds that those views are almost entirely insensitive to new information, Uh, that people come to these issues with uh, preconceived cultural uh, 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 stereotypes and and, uh, ideologies, uh, and they're very, very uh, difficult uh, to move. And you can pretty much predict by knowing what those ideologies are, what their position is on climate change or abortion or any number of other issues where evidence might uh, alter the opinion of a, uh, of, of a rational uh, uh, individual. Uh, another and extremely important uh, systemic problem is poor information. Uh, this, is, uh, this is, I hope, no uh, surprise to you. Uh, I hope you were, you were all marinated in the work of uh, Friedrich von Hayek. Um, Uh, who emphasized the nature of the information problem better than anybody else uh, before or since. Some of the policy manifestations of that are the Bureau of uh, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives, um, uh, uh, information about gun use, uh, and their information is very outmoded, it's very limited, and so forth, not because these officials are stupid, or ill-informed, but because Congress has made it extremely difficult for them to collect this data and maintain this data, much less analyze and and employ it. Uh, the Volcker Rule, uh, which I discuss at some length, um, not that I've read it, but and uh, other is anybody else, uh, is, is another uh, example of how poorly informed those who write our laws and regulations are about the intricacies of the way in which markets and other aspects, uh, other uh, areas of our society uh, uh, operate. So, uh, two weeks after the Volcker Rule was issued, uh, you may not have read this. But it was not widely uh, uh, um, covered by the uh, by the press, except for the Wall Street Journal, I think. Is that um, uh, the uh, banking authority, regulatory authorities, were obliged or felt obliged to uh, cut back on the Volcker Rule insofar as it applied to local banks? Why? Because it affected local banks in a way that the rulemakers had not anticipated. And these effects were dire, uh, dire indeed. Just just one example. Um, another feature of our policy-making system is its rigidity, where adaptability and flexibility are needed. Um, here, I provide a number of examples. Again, uh, uh, the postal service uh, has not adapted well to uh, to uh, the new technological and market facts. Not Again, not because they're stupid or indifferent to these changes. They actually have tried hard to convince Congress to allow them to compete with FedEx and other other, uh, uh, services. But uh, Congress has made it almost impossible for them to do that, in some cases prohibiting what would clearly be the rational uh, response uh, to that. Another example, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The Supreme Court... Uh, was wrong, I believe, in its decision last year uh, to strike down the Section 4 formula uh, 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 defining the uh, jurisdictions that were covered, but it was absolutely right in its denunciation of the anachronistic nature of that uh, formula uh, in 2013, which is when the decision was rendered as distinguished from 1965 when it was enacted. Uh, A sixth element is the lack of credibility needed to secure the cooperation of other actors. Um, This is extremely important and and quite interesting, in part because, and and also dismaying, because there's no good solution to this problem. The problem is this, that if you are going to induce other actors, be they state and local governments or or, or private actors, uh, to act in the way you want them to act in order for a policy to succeed— uh, you have to assure them that the rules of the game aren't going to change, uh, uh, that they can invest safely in uh, the uh, the uh, nature uh, uh, and the details of, of the program. Um, uh, but government can't do that. Why can't it do that? Well, for a perfectly good reason. Government is supposed to be accountable to voters and to their changing uh, preferences. Um, and uh, uh, so it, it, it can't keep its promises if... if if you will. Uh, and there are very few, if any, techniques that will enable the government to bond itself and and, and lash itself to the mask with respect to uh, policies in ways that would secure the confident uh, participation of, uh, of those whose resources it needs to uh, succeed. Perfect example of this, Obamacare uh, 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 vastly expanded Medicaid, uh, but uh, it Uh, and in order to induce states to expand their Medicaid programs in the desired fashion, um, it offered to pay uh, 100% of the cost of expanded Medicaid for three years, and after that it would pay, I I think it's 85%. Well, many states simply didn't believe it. They thought it was like being being given a gift of a baby elephant, Uh, and and, uh, that's that's fine when, uh, when you receive the elephant, but then the elephant grows and grows and grows, and you have to feed them and house them. So, um, uh, so lots of states are not not uh, adopting these otherwise uh, 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 quite the plausible and perhaps even desirable uh, changes. Um, then there's the problem of mismanagement, which is endemic, which is structural. And I sp- <clears throat> have I have a uh, a, a large, disc- a lengthy discussion of fraud, waste, and abuse in the government. I, I don't need to rehearse that there, except to say that. Uh, Much of the fraud, waste, and abuse are the result of structural factors uh, um, embedded in uh, the way in which government uh, makes its uh, decisions, including uh, the complexity of uh, programs uh, and including the uh, very poor design of reimbursement uh, techniques. Um, uh, But I I won't dwell on that. A major uh, uh, theme of my book is that markets are... Uh, a fundamental impediment to effective public policy. And many of you will say, and I will agree in in most cases, that that's a good thing. Um, But consider the features of markets uh, that uh, dog government efforts to uh, tame them or to to, uh, live with them. Uh, The speed of markets compared with the incredible slowness and inflexibility of, uh, of government. The diversity of markets. Again, government regulates in a rather uniform, uh, binary fashion. Uh, you're either in or you're out, guilty or you're innocent, you're uh, in, the, in this category, you're not in that category. Uh, whereas the, the markets cater to diversity, they even induce additional diversity where they can think they can uh, find a niche uh, that is uh, profitable. Uh, the information demands that markets place on regulators. Are very very high. It demands that cannot be met by uh, by regulators. Um, the price and substitution effects of markets means that uh, when government adopts a policy, it it it, it will uh, usually raise the price. Sometimes it will attempt to lower the price, but uh, it often, in particularly in its regulatory policies, raises the price of a particular service or uh, or or activity. And of course, the market responds by trying to find other ways to. Uh, to meet that demand at a lower cost or at a higher quality and um, uh, and uh, that may, as in many examples that I discuss in the chapter, uh, undermine uh, if not utterly defeat uh, the government's uh, the government's policy. there are trans jurisdictional effects of markets uh, markets do not respect jurisdictional lines um, and so um, uh, the not only is this uh, a problem in terms of international uh, competition, as with the Basel rules uh, with uh, banking and international finance, um, but um, the creation of informal or black markets uh, uh, um, as a result of the ability of um, of markets to um, evade the kinds of lines that uh, that government uh, draws, political influence of course. Uh, uh, is exercised by uh, market participants with, uh, uh, with uh, 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 through through campaign contributions, uh, through uh, um, uh, the influence uh, wielded by uh, large uh, companies uh, and uh, and other other mechanisms. That tends to subvert the effectiveness or the coherence of government policies, even where those policies would might otherwise be. Uh, coherent or uh, uh, co- coherent and effective. Um, I have a considerable discussion of political influence uh, uh, on the uh, by markets on government, and uh, I think it's a it's much more complicated than is usually understood. Markets do indeed exercise a great deal of uh, political influence. On the other hand, most of the influence that they exercise is not particularly partisan. Uh, and secondly, it represents the actual, real-world, individual effects of government policy on the part of its consumers, its employees, its investors, and so forth. So those are real. Those those are real uh, factors uh, that ought to be represented um, um, robustly in our uh, political process. Then there are uh, enforcement obstacles that the that markets uh, pose uh, to government. Um, there are lots of reasons for that, which I, uh, which I discuss, and again, some of them are are deeply rooted and, and uh, unlikely to be uh, ch- changeable. Rational expectations uh, a concept that economists have developed to explain why the market tends to anticipate policy changes and to incorporate to respond to those policy changes before the policies take effect and thereby neutralize the intended effect of those uh, policies and uh, in many cases, um, two other uh, two other effects of markets. One is that there are no good substitutes for market ordering. Uh, the, the the two major ones um, for mar- uh, alternatives to market ordering are are uh, law, government policy on the one hand, and social norms on the other. And uh, uh, they have they certainly have their roles to play, but they're uh, they're they're uh, uh, no match for markets in most areas of uh, public policy. And the final um, uh, effect of markets um, is moral hazard, which is immense, immense. And we've seen the, some of the consequences of that moral hazard uh, uh, in, in recent years, particularly in connection with the uh, Great uh, Recession. Uh, but there are countless programs that exhibit this moral hazard. Uh, uh, that is the, uh, the tendency of uh, people to... Um, Uh, to uh, act in ways that will advance their uh, interests when the government, through its policy, makes uh, that activity or that service less costly uh, than it would otherwise be. Crop insurance, flood insurance, lots of examples of moral hazard. Fannie Mae and uh, uh, Freddie Mac uh, are very good, uh, good and sobering examples of that. Uh, the next uh, fundamental uh, uh, structural uh, problem that I uh, devote a, a very long chapter to is uh, the obstacles to implementation. Uh, these obstacles are important they're not uh, they're not readily dispensed with they're not readily uh, s- uh, circumvented um, and government attempts to uh, uh, overcome these obstacles in a variety of different ways and i I divided this chapter into uh, the following categories just to give you a flavor of what I mean. Uh, Attempting to perfect markets, to supplement markets, for example, through infrastructure. And I have a discussion of Amtrak, uh, for example, which I came down uh, today, uh, and the uh, economic uh, disaster that uh, it has been. Uh, Suppressing markets, simplifying markets, subsidizing markets, I have a long discussion uh, under this rubric of, uh, of student financial aid programs, a disaster about to happen, um, if it's not already upon us, um, the ethanol program, many, many other examples. Redirecting markets, as in the effort under the Community Reinvestment Act to uh, force banks to uh, invest in areas that they uh, would not rather invest in, on the theory that their failure to invest in those areas must be due to. Uh, to racism. Uh, reintroducing markets, um, modifying markets, and recruiting markets. By recruiting markets I mean those efforts largely in the environmental area to, uh, to use market mechanisms to render regulation more, uh, more effective. That's been very, very limited. There have been some successes with that. Efforts to expand that have been uh, very uh, uh, largely unsuccessful. Um, but that's an area in which um, I think um, markets and public policy might be more uh, compatible. Uh, then I have a chapter on the limits of law, the inherent limits of law. That is to say, the limits of law that that assert themselves whenever one uses law as an instrument of public policy, which is virtually all the time. That's the, that's the, that's the form that policy uh, takes. and I, So I discuss its ubiquity. Uh, the trade-off between its simplicity and its complexity, um, uh, ambiguity, discretion. These are all endemic features of, uh, of, uh, of legal uh, regulation. Uh, the procedural apparatus that goes along with it, uh, the inertia uh, that it creates, and then the crowding out of spontaneous, low-cost cooperation by uh, markets. And then I have a chapter on uh, bureaucracy in which I emphasize Uh, The problems created by congressional influence, the the extraordinary penetration of bureaucracy by Congress, uh, often for good reasons, uh, but with uh, predictable, baleful effects on uh, policy coherence. Uh, uh, The legalism that uh, bureaucracies tend to uh, cultivate, leadership problems, layering problems. And here I just want to read... How am I doing on time?
0: Uh, You're a little past.
1: I'm a little past time. Okay, well, this is sort of amusing, so if, if I may, I'll just uh, – I, I, I write, um, Dear Reader, I'll bet that you did not know that there are now many federal officials who are denominated deputy, deputy assistant secretary, associate deputy assistant secretary, deputy associate, deputy administrator, chief of staff to the associate deputy assistant secretary, and that this thickening, this, this layering, has occurred in almost every, uh, every uh, department. I also discussed uh, compensation, status, performance, and morale problems in the bureaucracy. Again, they're, these are endemic, they're not, uh, they're not uh, uh, contingent on, on who is running the bureaucracy. Uh, the difficulties of imposing discipline, the failure of the, supreme, the uh, senior executive service, uh, the uh, difficulty of securing low-level uh, compliance. Uh, contracting out by the bureaucracy and its its poor management of uh, of, uh, contracts, and the isolation of the bureaucracy from the realities uh, that uh, surround it. Then I have a chapter on the policy successes, and I won't, because I'm out of time, I won't uh, rehearse those. I've uh, just written an op-ed, which I hope that New York Times is going to publish, which uh, tries to identify what I view as policy successes according to the criterion that I have advanced, Um, and it tries to draw lessons from those examples as to why successful policies succeed, whereas the vast majority of policies uh, uh, do not. And we can discuss that in the Q&A if you're interested in that. And finally, I have a chapter on remedies. Uh, These remedies are incremental because I'm an incrementalist for all the reasons why everybody should be an incrementalist. Uh, in that the world is simply too complex for us, uh, especially our political world, too, much too complex for us to be able to predict with any confidence at all what, uh, what uh, uh, the effects of a particular change uh, will be. And these remedies are also cross-cutting. That is to say, I've, uh, I've decided not to propose fixes for particular programs, but rather to identify remedies that might cut across all government uh, uh, programs. And I've organized them uh, uh, according to, the, to each of the structural conditions that I've just uh, that I've just uh, uh, laid out uh, for you. So um, I'm out of time, and I appreciate your uh, forbearance, and I look forward to uh, Dr. Kling's comments and your questions comments. Thank you
0: um, Before I uh, let Arnold Kling take the chair, I I should have mentioned that uh, he, too, is the author of six books, uh, one of which uh, with Cato Institute is on health care before we had the Obamacare crisis and most recently uh, and highly recommended the three languages of politics. Um, I really want to know of this list of obstacles to government action, which are true bugs and which are features. And I'm hoping we'll hear that from
2: That certainly uh, anticipates some of my comments. Well, I appreciate uh, Walter being uh, uh, the opportunity to discuss this important new book. Uh, The author refers to himself, describes himself as a militant moderate, and that's a phrase that includes both alliteration and oxymoron. And I might describe myself as a low-key libertarian, which also includes alliteration and probably many people would think of as an oxymoron. But we wouldn't always necessarily have described ourselves the way we describe ourselves today, and we might not always describe ourselves the way we describe ourselves today. And the book actually struck me as very transitional. That was the word that came to mind as I was reading it. That is, it could be profitably read by, and perhaps profitably written by, someone who is in the process of reevaluating their views and uh, and perhaps changing them. I had this weird idea that we could take 40 uh, random uh, ordinary knee-jerk liberal college students and uh, split them into, into two groups, give 20 of them a copy of this book, and give 20 of them a placebo, and then come back in five years and see if the treatment group doesn't have more libertarians in it. Because I suspect it could be an effective gateway drug. Um, the uh, Another way of putting that is you can think of this book as... Placed somewhere along a journey and uh, kind of in in spiritual terms uh, think of the book as climbing the mountain of enlightenment along a path which eventually leads to that state of higher consciousness that we call libertarianism. You know it's not at the summit but uh, it takes a couple important steps up the mountain and I'm going to talk about in my remarks about the steps that it takes up the mountain and maybe some of the remaining steps uh, that it could take. So the first step that it takes up the mountain is that it confronts very forthrightly the phenomenon of government failure. That is, he doesn't mince words about it. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't say that it's the exception rather than the rule. In fact, you heard him use words like endemic and systemic uh, many times in his talk. And that that gives the flavor of of the book very well. so that's the first step up the mountain. The next step up the mountain is that he moves away and, and quite clearly rejects what some of us call the intention heuristic for evaluating government programs. That is saying if the intention is good, then the program is good. That's the intention heuristic. And instead, he was very forceful that their programs need to be evaluated in terms of effectiveness and in terms of cost effectiveness. Uh, and that's another good step up the mountain. And now let me turn to some further steps that might uh, be taken up the mountain. So one step is uh, concerns the chapter that he kind of glossed over, which is the chapter on government successes. And I thought that the criteria for government successes ought to be tightened up a bit. Uh, for example, he says that Social Security is a success, uh, because the old people are getting their checks. At least they are now. Uh, but the, the system is not on a financially sound basis. And I think you need to be careful about calling it a success, because you know if just because people are receiving checks now on a, from something that's on a financially unsound basis, I mean, with that criteria, you would have said for many years that Bernie Madoff was a success. And uh, there are a couple other programs where, or a couple other successes that he describes, which look to me like government backing away from a policy that was ill-conceived to begin with. So one example is the 1965 immigration reform, where we got rid of racist immigration quotas, and that was good to get rid of them. Uh, But I'm I'm not sure that success is the right way to describe that. and the next was a, that I'm thinking of is the 1978 airline deregulation, where prior to deregulation, government was engaged in restricting entry and fixing prices for airlines, for consumer airlines. And uh, deregulation backed away from that ill-conceived policy. I think that calling those successes is somewhat misleading. And it sort of suggests that, that government intervention was, is somehow successful when, in fact, the success was in backing away from uh, ill-conceived government interventions. Uh, The next step up the mountain has to do with economics. Uh, I think that the author has a very uh, good grasp of neoclassical economics. And that's a good thing, but you don't want to take it too seriously. Um, Neoclassical economics. is focused very strongly, uh, sort of obsessed with the concept of equilibrium and pays relatively little attention to innovation. And the kind of economics that I like to do is the other way around. pays a lot of attention to innovation and doesn't really believe that markets are ever in equilibrium. So we don't worry about whether markets are going to get to a good equilibrium or a bad equilibrium because we don't think markets are going to get to equilibrium at all. And this process of innovation you can think of as having three steps. It has You have to introduce experiments, you have to learn from experiments, and then there has to be evolution as a result of that learning. And government is inferior to markets in the first and third steps. That is, government is not going to be able to try as many experiments. No one organization has the ability or the will to engage in lots and lots of experiments. Uh, But in a market, when one organization won't try something Another organization will. And in the third step of evolution, which means throwing out the things that don't work and keeping the things that do, again, the market has the discipline of profit and loss, whereas the government only has self-evaluation. And no organization will self-evaluate with the rigor of the profit and loss system. I was reminded of that a couple of weeks ago, the economic report of the president came out, you know, the annual economic report, and it has a chapter called Evaluation as a Tool for, for Improving Government Programs. And that chapter reads as if they have taken some of the principles of this book to heart, that the Obama administration has taken some of those principles to heart, saying that we should uh, evaluate government programs for their effectiveness, not just uh, use the intention heuristic. And moreover, the chapter gives me the sense that they took these principles to heart five years before the book was published because it says that uh, the Obama administration initiated a uh, government-wide effort to focus on evaluation uh, as soon as President Obama took office. Now knowing what we know about government programs, either Uh, independently or from reading this book, you would think that switching from the intention heuristic to an evaluation methodology should produce violent results. I mean, there would be cutbacks and terminations, blood on the floor, a real horror show. But don't worry. You can take your children safely to read about what happened uh, as a result of this initiative on policy effectiveness. The worst thing that happens is that A couple small programs get told that they're not going to get their funding increased until they make some improvements. Um, So as a taxpayer, I just picture the expense of rolling out this government-wide initiative to evaluate programs and getting all the agencies to comply and then looking at the net benefits as a result, and I think we lost. I think that... This initiative to go from the intention heuristic to an evaluation methodology, while well intended, was ineffective. And that's ironic, but I believe predictable, because, again, I don't think organizations self-evaluate effectively. That That you need the discipline of profit and loss system to get evolution as part of an innovation process. Okay, so that's uh, the second step up the mountain, further up the mountain. And finally, the the third step uh, up the mountain has to do with what I call the heat. Now, you know, uh, sometimes you'll go to a household and the spouses cannot agree about where to set the thermostat. So one one spouse wants to turn up the heat, the other spouse wants to turn down the heat. And the heat I'm thinking of is spelled H-E-T-E, it's stands for Highly Educated Technocratic Elite. And my sense of this book is that he would like to turn up that heat, that is, give the highly educated technocratic elite more autonomy and more authority, uh, more running room to pursue policies, and I wanna turn down the heat, I wanna do the opposite. So you heard uh, his discussion of of a lot of the impediments to uh, good government, and they included a lot of things like De- uh decentralization, checks and balances, a uh, cultural distrust of uh, technical expertise and so on. And go- getting to your point about features and bugs, I I, I want to see those things increased rather than decreased. And I think our our fundamental disagreement concerns you know whether we want to turn up the heat or turn down the heat. Um, Now, I have nothing against people having great educational credentials. I mean, an analogy might be with uh, teenage drivers with driver's licenses. I definitely think that it's better that teenage drivers have licenses than that they not have licenses. But I still don't want to see a teenager pile five of his friends into a car and drive downtown to go bar hopping. And to me, the policy equivalent of that is taking on policy initiatives that are beyond anyone's level of understanding of complex social processes and beyond anyone's capability to administer and execute effectively. So with the teenagers, um, I think the vast majority of teenagers out there have the self-restraint and self-knowledge not to go driving down with five of their friends to go bar hopping, going downtown to do that. Um, But because a small minority uh, don't have that self-restraint and self-knowledge, I think we need social norms and uh, legal restraints that uh, prevent them from doing that. And I feel the same way about the highly educated technocratic elite. That is, uh, I think most highly educated people in this country, uh, people in business, in all the facets of civil society, have the self-restraint and the self-knowledge not to impose vast policy schemes uh, that go beyond any, any, the, what anyone can understand about our complex system and that or, uh, go beyond anyone's capability of administering. Unfortunately, there's a minority that does not have that self-restraint and um, self-knowledge. And a lot of them end up in places in the media, in academia, and in high positions in government. And so I think that the key is to have even more cultural norms and legal restraints uh, to curb their behavior. So again, to to review, I think this book has taken a step up the mountain by uh, really delving into and focusing on government failure. It takes another step up the mountain by moving, rejecting the intention heuristic in favor of cost-effectiveness evaluation. A further step would be to be a little more rigorous about the definition of a success. Another step would be to uh, look at innovation economics, uh, not just neoclassical economics, and look at the impediments that government faces in both uh, the experimental phase of that process and the evolution phase of that process. And then finally, uh, the next step would be to uh, reconsider the assumptions about the highly educated technocratic elite. That is, if I, I believe that if I had uh, the author's comfort level and confidence in the technocratic elite, then I too would be a militant moderate. On the other hand, I think if he had my sober assessment of the uh, technocratic elite's uh, deficiencies, uh, overconfidence, uh, lack of self-knowledge, and lack of self-restraint, then he too would be a low-key libertarian.
0: Would Would you like to say something in response? Or... Yes, and
1: I'll try to be brief since... Um... Uh, I agree with a great deal of what he said uh, so let me just identify the uh, the points on which I want to s- say a bit more and then uh, uh, entertain your questions and comments um, terms of the criteria for success um, I am much more careful than uh, dr. Kling suggests in in my discussion of these programs uh, Social Security for example I uh, describe first of all I, I say that uh, these were we writing on a clean slate. We would design many of these programs differently. So the fact that Social Security employs a mandatory tax, uh, uh, a mandatory uh, retirement uh, scheme, whereas had we in 1935 uh, we if had we um, uh, initiated uh, um, retirement savings accounts through IRAs and uh, and other uh, sort of more voluntary. Uh, market-driven schemes—we might be better off. That might be true. It might not be true. I, I'm sort of agnostic on a question that that large. Um, uh, even though I'm a highly educated uh, technological elite uh, person, and I think any sensible person should be pretty agnostic about uh, about that question. Even though libertarians, you know, tend to, tend to want to redesign these programs in a, uh, on the basis that the existing programs uh, have certain defects, and therefore. Uh, these uh, other programs that they haven't yet uh, designed and implemented uh, uh, would not, and I, I, I'm very doubtful about that so with Social Security, I talk about the uh, precisely uh, the uh, challenges that lay ahead the the insolvency that looms. Uh, but in the case of Social Security, and again, taking the basic design of the program as a given rather than say, rather than proposing some altogether new way of of financing uh, retirements, um, I think the, the 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 repairs of that system are fairly straightforward. It take a while for the politicians to come to terms with them, but I have no doubt that uh, that that they will. Immigration reform, I you know, I'm very clear uh, in my discussion of that that um, the abandonment of the uh, national origins quotas was an extraordinarily important thing that the uh, creation of a much more diverse immigration flow has been a, one of the great achievements of American society unmatched in any other uh, country in, in the world. Uh, but there are some serious problems, uh, as, as we all know. So I won't rehearse that particular uh, debate. I've written a lot about what ought to be done to fix the, uh, fix the immigration system. As far as airline deregulation, uh, it's a, it, he's quite right that it's a return to the market. And I say there that it's a policy, uh, not a program. That is to say, one of one of I think we should count as a success in these days the government's repeal of bad programs uh, uh, under a theory that uh, uh, that uh, they don't work and their absence will actually improve social welfare. I think airline deregulation and transportation deregulation, more generally, as uh, an example of that. So, so that says the criteria for success. But I also emphasize that. Reasonable people, uh, including regional heats, uh, can disagree about uh, about particular programs. Um, and um, you have my view, but uh, others uh, might uh, disagree. As far as um, uh, neoclassical economics, I'm, I, I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, and I don't think that anything in my analysis suggests that I'm uh, that I uh, am indifferent to innovation, or that I am satisfied with the market equilibrium that have been reached in a static, in, in in a static world. The world is not static, and I certainly uh, uh, endorse um, Dr. Kling's uh, steps for uh, uh, emph- emphasizing innovation. And I, in my remedies section, I discuss a number of ways in which that might be done, includes, including uh, the Sort of social science equivalent of a random randomized controlled studies, um, which are the, you know the gold standard for biomedical uh, uh, research and assessment um, in in uh, policy areas. And there's a new, small but emerging literature on how that uh, on how that might be done. Um, uh, and um, so there's really no disagreement there. And then as far as the uh, the heat uh, category um, uh, i don 't think it's true that I want to turn up the heat, nor do i nor, nor do I celebrate uh, heats uh, in this book at all uh, i but I think I, I have a, a somewhat different and perhaps less categorical approach to these questions than Dr. Kling does, and that is I want to look at each of these programs on its own merits, at least any program that's plausible, not any. Cockamamie idea, but any program that's plausible and has a lot of political support, I want to look at it uh, uh, at it on its uh, on its merits. And uh, often, uh, uh, technological elites uh, are uh, instrumental in uh, assessing those programs and often condemning those programs and initiating change. So, uh, one example of a success that I cite—it's a controversial example to many people—but I. I am confident that I'm right about this, is the 1996 welfare reform, uh, which uh, was the result of uh, a variety of experimentation of the kind that uh, uh, both Dr. Kling and I endorse um, uh, at, at the state level. And also. But those, those experiments were designed by Heats. Um, and uh, there's a new book out uh, uh, by uh, the, uh, uh, Russell Sage uh, called, uh, called Fighting for Good Evidence, in social policy, by uh, Judith Guerin and Howard Ralston, which recount the story of how difficult it was to get that to, to mount those experiments, design them, and to implement them, and, and then to use their uh, use their findings um, uh, in policy terms. So, um, um, I'm I'm all for favoring favoring heats using heats where uh, where they uh, do the right thing in my in my conception of what the right thing is, and and opposing them when they don't. I don't think there's anything disqualifying about highly educated uh technological uh, elites um and I don't think that they have the I don't think th- they certainly exhibit at times and often more systematically a certain of the biases that uh, Dr. Kling uh, recounts but they also tend to be more open to new evidence uh than uh than I think uh non-heats are, and they have the techniques, uh, they've mastered the techniques for adducing and designing uh, and then evaluating uh, evidence uh, that we need to make better decisions. Thank you.
0: We have time for a few questions from the floor. Before we do that, let me talk a bit about the logistics of uh, the next 20 minutes. After the questions, we are going to take a break for lunch. Uh, lunch is up, one flight. Uh, we will be filing out, um, going up the uh, stately spiral staircase, uh, pausing to purchase uh, Professor Schuck's book and uh, possibly have him sign it, um, and then filing in where there will be uh, a light uh, lunch for all of us. There's an elevator uh, for those of you who have trouble with, with stairs. When I call on you, um, please wait for a moment until the helpful person can bring a microphone so the entire group uh, and also the audience on C SPAN uh, will be able to hear what you ask. Uh, when you begin, uh, we appreciate it if you can identify yourself, uh, especially if you're with an organization or a university, um, so we know a little bit more about our audience. Um, with that, uh, who would like to ask the first question? Yes, sir.
3: I am uh, Terry Freeman with the uh Publicized Risk Forum and uh I uh I found this uh, discussion a very complex rendering of apparently a complex problem and uh it begs of a complex solution pretty much uh sort of implies a complex solution and uh it's kind of like uh I- I'm a country hick so um It's kind of like being up to your elbows in pig goo and you're trying to find a program that will alleviate the consequences of that when any hick knows that you just avoid pig goo. Uh, Would it be more concise for you to say that uh, government fails when it attempts to replace consumers and consumer markets with programmatic proxies? When in fact the government is a poor market substitute, as it neither benefits from the policies of the program, nor does it bear the consequences of its risks?
1: I would say, by and large, yes. That's a very accurate uh, description of one of the major problems and sources of failure of uh, government policies.
0: Okay. Next. Uh, yes, Professor Maxsteiner.
4: James of the University of Baltimore School of Law. Well, I suppose the last thing an author wants to think about is what I'm going to suggest, a sequel. I thought the book is terrific. I, I love that it's uh, addressing all sorts of endemic problems, systematic problems, failure by failure by failure. But the last chapter, Remedies, was only a single chapter. I'd like to see a whole book <laughs> of Remedies. And I'm offering to publish it, too. <laughs> Uh, I, I'll publish it in, in a series that the, one of the world's largest academic publishers do. Now, you're particularly well-suited to do this, although you sort of eschew the possibility of doing it in your introduction, and that is a comparison. You're the Simeon E. Baldwin chair. Now, Simeon E. Baldwin, besides being the president of the American Bar Association, was the founder, director of the Comparative Law Bureau. And I can assure you, there are lots and lots of comparisons that will tell us, yes, it can work, and it does work better, and Walter will testify that I've done that. And so I'd like to encourage you to do that, to put together uh, a group of people. You've got John Longbein and Dimashko already there at Yale, both of whom are terrifically knowledgeable in this field. Go for it, show us how it can be, or how it's done better, or how it's done differently so we can at least get some good ideas, because there are a lot of good ideas abroad. Thank you.
1: Well, I certainly appreciate the offer. I I will take it under consideration, but I, I explicitly eschew a great deal of comparative research because i believe that uh, your, uh, other countries systems are so very very different in in ways that i discuss uh that it's very hard to know whether uh, the, the program that seems to work there first of all it's very difficult to know whether it works there uh, the amount of uh, uh evaluative research uh in in this country is much greater than it is elsewhere even though it's piddling i didn't I didn't mention um, uh, the um, uh, the absence of. I, I have the statistics here. I'm not, I'm not sure whether it's um, it's worth uh, getting into. But just just let me give one quote from Peter Orzag and John Bridgel. who were two uh, top budget officials in uh, Republican and uh, Democrat Democratic administrations. It says less than one. This is an article in the Atlantic, uh, which I commend to you. Less than one dollar out of every hundred dollars of federal spending is backed by even the most basic evidence that the money is being wisely spent. And in the healthcare area, less than one out of a thousand dollars goes toward evaluating whether the other nine hundred ninety-nine dollars actually works. Um, uh, Clifford Winston uh, 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 of the Brookings Institution uh, uh, assessed every published or read and and analyzed every published scholarly study he could find on the actual microeconomic effects of regulatory programs aimed at a large variety uh, of programs. There's very very little of this. Uh, Peter Ross uh, uh, has set forth the laws of assessment uh, and evaluation. uh, The iron, stainless steel, brass, and zinc sort of reminds me of the Obamacare uh, uh, insurance exchange uh, choices. Uh, but I, I, I discuss them here, and it's very uh, very illuminating. Um, political scientists, we're told, um, publish four times as many articles on distributional, distributional issues uh, as they do on government effectiveness. And Terry Moss, a uh, famous political scientist at Stanford, says bureaucratic effectiveness is given no serious attention. So it's, And there's less of it in Europe than, it is, than there is here. So I'm a little dubious about... That, but uh, but but secondly, and going back to my original point, our system really is so exceptional. Uh, I have American exceptionalism. Exceptionalism, uh, well, in, in some respects and others, it's not, um, and it's important to keep that in mind. Uh, just the difference between a a system like ours, a separated system of separated powers like ours, and a Westminster system like in the UK, is vast, and it permeates everything. And so, but if so, if your conclusion would be, well, they have uh, some better programs there than we do, and therefore we ought to move to a parliamentary system, I I, I couldn't disagree more. We have not a clue as to whether that would make matters better or worse in the conditions in which we
0: live here. I don't think you want to add anything. Okay. Um, Yes, second row.
5: Thank you, Hermes from OWS. I just have a question and a comment. The question is: If you can define a typology of uh, policies that success that are successful. And the comment is: I would like to invite Cato and all the community of research to introduce in the axis in the heuristic axis a new paradigm because it might help to see more about the truth. And it's about uh, how this, uh, what I call high politics, how people we don't see intervene in our daily offers and uh, impose many things we cannot understand until we em- investigate this domain. And, and I'm open to talk about it. And that's why I invite Cato and everybody else about it.
0: Thank you. Thank
1: you. Uh, any, any? Yeah. Um, I think you'll have to read the book. I think I've, I've laid it out there as best I can. Uh, so I can't respond more than that.
0: Okay. We have time for one more question. I saw, yes, uh, John Samples.
6: Uh, John Samples, Cato Institute. I want to follow up uh, or ask both speakers uh, something that Arnold uh, sort of suggested, uh, that is, the he raised the question of the independence of evaluative efforts. He doesn't expect that government okay. uh, evaluators... Sorry, John, can you speak up? Raise your voice. Uh, he, Arnold mentioned that he didn't expect that uh, government evaluators would give us an independent evaluation of government programs. Well, an interesting thing is mm-hmm. we, when you get the real expansion of uh, the social side of government, domestic spending... With the Great Society, you also they also set up and funded a think tank to do evaluation, which was the Urban Institute. Uh, and subsequently, there's been a lot of contracting to do outside evaluative studies. So I guess my question would be, to what extent do you see, either one of you, see those outside contractors as capable think tanks, as capable of providing some good feedback on programs in terms of evaluation? And are there other uh, potential uh, ways of going about that with external evaluators that might overcome the, the problem that Arnold certainly points to
1: well it's uh, a great question, and i don't have a clear cut answer I, I it depends, which is not the the answer you're looking for uh, for example, when I was at in the Department of health education and welfare i was uh, my unit was responsible for dispersing uh, large funds for uh, policy research on a large scale for income maintenance, uh, particularly the income maintenance experiments that were conducted in five or six different cities, um, the national health insurance experiments, and a number of others. Uh, I think those contractors did a very, very good job, and we supervised them uh, pretty closely, um, and I think the product was excellent social science as these things go. And much of what we know about the likely effects of... Uh, of uh, anti-poverty uh, policies of certain types, and of national health insurance uh, proposals, uh, is owing to uh, to that research. Um, Mathematica uh, provides some very very good uh, policy uh, research, uh, and you know, lots of other lots of other outside organizations do so. Um, but uh, you know, you'd have to look at the individual uh, individual products. There is a problem of uh, bias. The bias can be economic, it could be ideological, it could be professional. Um, I don't see any way around that sort of problem except to try to uh, 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 have competitive assessments uh, going on at the same time and, and trying to bring these possible biases to the surface.
2: Um, okay, my view is I don't... There's
1: no... See- arc, I, just to put it to the point uh, uh, epigrammatically, there's no Archimedean point uh, for policy evaluation that doesn't require human beings uh, to, to make judgments, and those judgments are likely to be a- affected by the usual causes. Uh,
2: my view is it doesn't address the problem. Remember, I had three components of innovation. I had experimentation, learning, and evolution. Uh, the evaluations by external contractors are part of the learning process and i didn't say that there's a that government's problem is that it can't learn about whether programs are working or not the problem is the action that takes place as a result of that learning the evolution and that's where any organization resists getting rid of things that don't work it'll do anything to avoid that and i'm not saying government is different than the private sector i mean i've you know i've been in the private sector and i know that you know, if you're not you know, confronted with the discipline of profit and loss in a big way, uh, you're not inclined to undertake evolutionary change yourself. So, um, So I think that, yes, you can get useful evaluations, both internal and from contractors, but in the end, you won't get the evolution.
1: Uh, Just a very brief comment. I I agree with uh, Dr. Kling about that. Um, A very good example, which I discuss in the book, uh, is Head Start, uh, where outside evaluators and the Department of Health and Human Services has actually done very costly and and extensive assessments of the program over a course of many decades. And uh, they have pretty uniformly, there's some dissent, but they're pretty uniformly showed that the effects of Head Start, the positive effects of Head Start uh, uh, erode uh, by the third grade and uh, sometimes even over the summer. Uh, there are some contrasting claims, uh, and maybe they're right. It's hard to say. But anyone uh, receiving that report in 2011 when I think it was conducted would have said, well, gee, we really, maybe we should cut back Head Start and try something else or, or, or uh, uh, begin experimenting with, uh, uh, with alternatives to Head Start um, And uh, that's not what's done now. They have made some Head Start has made some minor changes. I believe they're going to uh, require competitive competitive um, applications from the lowest ranking programs. That's good, I suppose, depending on how how it's implemented. Uh, But it's it's a very good example of uh, Dr. Kling's point: the the use that's made of the evaluation is uh, is often uh, to dismiss it, discard it, or, uh, or or misrepresent it.
0: Today's proceedings will be shown on C-SPAN, probably this weekend. Uh, They will also turn up within a few days at cato.org slash events, where you'll find many other good videos to watch, too. Uh, We will be heading upstairs, and those of you wondering about bathroom facilities, on the second floor, you'll pass a yellow wall. That's where you'll find those. Uh, Please join me in thanking uh, Arnold Arnold Kling and Peter Shaw.